Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Koshi here. Before we get into this episode of The Call, I've got a favor to ask. The bigger the Ausbiz audience, the more we can invest in great content and keep providing quality investment ideas to you for free. If you could just take a minute of your time to leave a review of the call in the Apple podcast app, it'll help keep our tribe growing. And of course, don't forget to catch up with all the best interviews each day at ausbiz.com.au. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the call. Hello, welcome back to Beers. Wherever you are joining us in lockdown around the country, it is time to stop binging on Bridgerton and start earning some money. That's what we'll do for you during lockdown. This is the time to take your lunch, have a sandwich, uh, turn off Slack and uh, take 60 minutes where we'll look after your finances and point you in the right direction of making some money over the next 60 minutes or so. This is The Call, uh, and we talk uh, all things shares, particularly 10 stocks that you suggested uh, that we analyse. We put it to an expert panel, uh, and forget the young spunks from Bridgerton. We have Michael Wayne from Medallion Financial joining us, and Andrew Page from Strawman. Good morning, gents. Hello, Koshi. Good morning. Great intro. I wish, <laughs> well, I wish I've, I've been chatting to all these people going, oh, we need something to watch during lockdown and all that sort of stuff. And I keep saying, well, the middle of the day, the call is the one that you should be watching and Ausbiz throughout the rest of the day. So uh, put the, this lockdown to good use and we'll point you in the right direction of uh, some stocks. Um, how are you guys coping with uh, lockdown, Michael? Yeah, look, bunkering up, I think. It's looking like we'll be, you know, back out and about maybe September, November, if we're lucky uh, at this rate. <laughs> no, <laughs> so we've, got to be, we've got to be more more positive, Andrew, don't we? But uh, while people might be at home, markets keep, keep on turning. Uh, I don't know about you, but the big bounce on Wall Street last night started to make me a bit more worried about the market, the volatility coming back into it. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. At the same time, though, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I mean, this is one thing you, you could transport yourself to any instant in time in our history with the market, and there's always volatility and uncertainty there. So, yeah. you know, um, I'm, I'm more I'm more on the eyes on the horizon kind of guy, trying to look three five years out. So, um, yeah. we'll see what happens over that time yeah. frame. And these sorts of things can bring opportunities. All right, before we start getting into uh, analysing the 10 stocks you've asked us to take a look at, um, I choose a stock of the day, something that's uh, been in the news. Thought we'd take a look at Service Stream. Doesn't come up too often here on the call. I I like to look at stocks that uh, don't appear too much in the list because there's just so much choice on the markets at the moment. Service Stream um, uh, has agreed this morning 
uh, on a $310 million deal to acquire Lend Leases Services business, with the deal to be funded through existing debt and proceeds from a $185 million equity raise. Uh, Global Lend Lease Chief Executive Tony Lombardo uh, says the divestment allows Lend Lease to focus on its competitive edge. Um, Andrew Page, what does it mean for Service Trade? Look, I'll, I'll confess, it's not a company I'm intimately familiar with. It's one that, when you look at the history of it, it's had this actually pretty decent history until very recently. And I believe that's due to some loss of some uh, contracts associated with the NBN. And this is this is a reflection of what you need to be aware of with service-oriented businesses. You know, it's great when the, when the contracts are coming in and there's lots of work, but you need to replace them. And when they're lost, you can have the, the, wool, uh, the rug pulled out from underneath you. So... I haven't had time to digest this deal. Um, you know, they're, they're talking it up uh, as as they would. Um, I hope that it can do something for their earnings because I had a quick squeeze at the forecasts. And prior to today, the analysts on consensus are calling for something like a, a seven cent earnings per share figure for 2022. That contrasts with 14 cents for 2020. Uh, so that's that's a bit of a hole there that they need to fill. And you can see that reflected on, on the share price chart. So let's see if that can reinvigorate interest in the stock. Yeah, Michael Wayne, it seems as though, you know, there are a lot of these companies who were connected with the rollout of the MBN. The MBN rollouts come basically come to a, an end, the major pro- portion of it. It's basically uh, maintenance of the system at the moment. Uh, is this a consolidation in that industry? Look, I think so. I mean, Service Stream has done it now. I think this is probably their second sizable acquisition in the last sort of 12 months or so. They're looking to diversify their earnings stream and reduce their reliance on the MBN. Um, as you, you point out rightly, during the roll-up, it's all, it's all great. They're, they're building more and more poles and wires and the maintenance required in doing that keeps increasing. But as these things are built, it just turns to the maintenance side of things, which um, basically puts a handbrake on that revenue growth. And I mean, um, if you look at service stream, I think their revenues last financial year dropped by about 17, 20% or so. So even if you're a business with the most unbelievable margins in the world, that sizable drop in revenue is gonna cause you issues. So the company and the management are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to diversify uh, the companies that they deal with and get different sources of revenue coming in the door. Uh, the reality is ServiceStream did have a pretty clean balance sheet, which has allowed them to go out and do these acquisitions. But if you're looking to pick it up, um, I'll be waiting to see how this diversification phase goes uh, before jumping into it. Because you want to get some confidence that the lost revenue from the NBN projects are going to be made up elsewhere. Uh, and at this point of time, I don't think you have that clarity. So it's a business going through a, a transitionary stage um, and there are definitely a few risks on the horizon. And I think without doubt that the heady days of a few years ago are unlikely to be replicated ever uh, again, probably, or at least okay. in the foreseeable future. Sure. So it's a, a no for me for that reason. Okay. All right, let's uh, get into the stocks that our viewers have sent in. And uh, Michael, Edward wants a view on Little Green Farmer. Edward says... Recently purchased a new facility in Denmark at a cost of a million dollars per ton output versus 2.7 million dollar cost here in Australia. Little Green Farmer is a medical cannabis company. They bought this facility in Denmark, which is the largest cannabis production asset in Europe. 
20 tonnes of biomass, 12 tonnes of dried cannabis flower each year. Got a fair bit under cultivation. Um, big step for it. What do you think of Little Green Farmer? Yes, yeah, so I think just to, to strip it back and look at the, the industry overall, it's obviously an infant industry, a, a whole flurry of these medical medicinal marijuana type companies hit the index going back a few years. Um, most haven't done too well. Uh, Little Green Farm is probably the best performer of the bunch, or at least amongst some of the better performers of the bunch. Um, to understand the, the industry, there are essentially three different buckets that these companies fit in. Um, it's producing either commercial, um, uh, more sort of, um, what do you want to call it, recreational type uses for the medical marijuana or the marijuana. Then there are the medicinal marijuana, which is involved in the healthcare industry. And then there's obviously the farming aspect or the production and growing aspect. And Little Green Farmers involved in that particular part of the industry, which has been doing okay. I mean, it's a, probably a less risky uh, and easier part of the industry to, to do, to get the, the approvals and the, and the required regulatory approvals probably is a bit easier than if you're trying to sell a medicinal marijuana product used in healthcare treatments. So it's doing, it seems to be doing quite well. They've got some decent revenue. They basically grow the stuff and then sell it on to companies in Europe for them to process and put into different products. So it does remove an element of risk in that sense. But just like any company that's looking to expand their production capacity, take on new farms or new factories or whatever it may be, there's obviously risk associated with that. Um, but the whole industry is in its early, very early stage. It's very difficult, in my view, to work out which of those companies is going to stand the test of time. So out of, the, out of a bunch, it's probably the best of a, a bad bunch. Um, but the outlook is still very, very questionable. So it's a very, very high risk at this stage. So despite the fact that it does have some good contracts in place, it does seem to be growing revenue quite quickly, um, given the fact that they're you know, buying new assets and and increasing production, et cetera, does increase the costs associated with this company. So just because they're earning more revenue, it's not like it's flowing through to earnings anytime soon. So high risk, uh, probably best of a bad bunch in a infant risky industry at the moment. Okay, all right, Andrew? Yeah, I'm gonna echo a lot of uh, that sentiment there. I mean, it's easy to sort of laugh at a lot of these these companies, but you know, there's there's a lot of legitimacy in, in what they're doing. I, I, I'm one of these people who thinks the industry will be bigger uh, down the track, but at the same time, as Michael said, it's in its it's in its infancy. There's all kinds of sort of regulatory hurdles that they need to pass. There's sort of societal hurdles <laughs> that need to be passed here uh, as well. Um, you know, I also wonder where the competitive advantage comes um, for a lot of these uh, companies. You know, it, it's called weed for a reason. Right? It's pretty easy to grow. Um, so. Uh, I, I imagine that it's, it's one of these situations where even if the industry does end up being much larger in the future, that any demand growth will be easily met with any supply growth as well. And perhaps from jurisdictions that have a lot less barriers to entry than we might have here in Australia. So, look, it's interesting that their sales have seemed to have done uh, pretty well. Uh, that's actually profitable at the last half, which was interesting. But they have tipped into cash flow negative uh, as they've upped their R&D, as they're uh, upped their uh, employee count. Um, so, you know, and, and then on top of that, you've got to factor in, no matter how rosy an outlook there may or may not be, you've got to pay a price for that. And just trying to um, forecast what sales might be for the 12 months ahead, taking the most recent, very favorable quarter, in fact, and pro-ridering that out, you're on about 15 times sales uh, here, which is quite a lot to pay for a business that's facing a huge amount of risk. So. 
I wish them well. I think there are some genuine medical benefits for, with the product that they have, but a long and difficult road ahead. So it's a bit too speculative and too, too pricey for me. Okay. All right. Um, Andrew, Corey wants a view on Soralto. They're um, um, sort of a tech business in IT and and databases and legacy systems. I've just uh, recently done two uh, big deals, one with, with MasterCard um, and another with Fresh Supply Company in the agricultural business. Um, what do you think yeah. about that? Yeah, well, this is one of those ones you, you know, I wasn't familiar with. So you try and do a bit of prep for the show and it's uh, you sort of read the, the headline and you've really got to drill into it because it's it's sort of like a lot of big uh, jargony words and you think, well, what exactly do you guys do? Um, and I, I guess it's probably best summed up as business-to-business transaction software. So everything from point of sales to payments, trading, debt collection, um uh, they're in a bit of a trading hole, as I understand it, at the moment. Um, so uh, as we wait for more information, that trading hole has been uh, extended as well as we wait for more detail on this announcement with MasterCard and Fresh Supply Co. Um, having a look at their recent history over the last year, cash receipts, which is what they really focus on in their presentations, have grown massively on a percentage basis. But in dollar terms, it's still really, really small. So. $68,000 in uh, a year ago in the quarter, up to $300,000 uh, at the moment. So great growth, but off an incredibly small base. Um, they've raised funds recently. In fact, they've had to raise funds three times uh, in the last year. Uh, part of that is to purchase app establishment. I believe they were um, uh, licensing their software, and now they've sort of brought that in-house. Uh, all of that means that they are pretty well cashed up at the moment, no debt. But this is a business that seems to be very much in transition. They're talking a good game. They look as though they've got reasonable products. But it's also a, a space that is highly, highly, highly competitive with some very big international name players. So for me, it's, again, one potentially to watch. But with all of this restructure going on, um, it's it's... I would like to see some serious traction uh, on the board before before I was to dip my toe into the water. So too early, too speculative at this stage for me. Okay, Michael. Yeah, I'm lucky you didn't ask me about this one first. It would have been a very short show. I hadn't come across it before. Um, did a bit of a reading into it prior to the show. Um, it does seem to be mainly sort of payment services, um, getting you know people away from. EFT transfers. Um, it's had some luck and success so far in the agricultural industry. It sort of reduces the risk of non-payment, um, improves the efficiency of matching cash flows, etc. So there does seem to be a, an, an interesting business here at play. But as Andrew points out, there are a lot of businesses in this space um, in, in the modern payment facilitation area. Um, so it's hard to see where this company's natural advantage will be long term. I think there's still a lot of a lot more contracts that need to be won. There needs to be a lot more dollar value revenue coming into the business um, before you can have a, a genuine look at this one. So for me, it's a pass at this stage. Okay. All right, let's go to the other end of the scale to uh, one of the giants on the market. And um, uh, Michael, Adria wants a view on Woodside. Adria says medium term play in the energy sector or a dinosaur drowning in the ESG-minded investor tsunami. I love it, Adria. <laughs> You've very succinctly put for one of Australia's biggest uh, biggest energy oil producer, oil and gas producers. Yeah, very emotive language there. I'm probably <laughs> look. I'm not going to go as harsh, but I'm leaning towards the dinosaur. 
It's um, the largest producer of energy in Australia, and it's got very low cost of production, which is great. However, it's lacking growth when you look out five, 10 years, given that their resource life um, is, is getting smaller and smaller very quickly. Um, the fact is they've got to conduct a lot of exploration. They've got to get some more projects to the replenish their resource base. Uh, and with that comes risk and, and comes costs. And that's why you've probably seen Woodside lagging some of the other energy producers, despite the pickup that we have seen in recent times in the oil space, uh, in the energy space. So for mine, I don't, I don't mind the energy space overall. I do think it's one part of the market which hasn't rallied too hard uh, post-COVID. Um, yet the underlying commodity has rallied fairly strongly. So I don't mind the overall space, but I do think you can probably get more bang for your buck looking at things like a Santos or an oil search, uh, which have more upside based on the projects that they have in the pipeline. Woodside's got some great assets now, but the fact is those resources are deplenishing pretty quickly, um, also depleting pretty quickly. So the question mark is where are they going to get their significant growth from in the future? And, and that for me, um, is an unanswered question, so we'll give it a miss. Um, so it's a sell from mine. Okay, Andrew. Yeah, I'm going to be a lot more harsh. Um, I, this is this is a hard hard pass for me, um, and I think I can actually make that case by being really objective. I mean, let's let's run through some numbers here. Your sales are half of what they were on a per share basis back in 2014. Uh, the net profit has been exceedingly lumpy and declining. Dividends have been, as a consequence, very lumpy and on average declining. Massive ESG issues, as Adria sort of points out. Long-term challenges, I, I would suspect, in the industry. Oil is not going away anytime soon. Um, but, but you know, it is, it is not a, a sector that overall is likely to grow, in my, my view. It's got all of these characteristics of a business that I would just run a mile from, massively capital intensive, its assets are always waning, it's susceptible to, the, uh, to commodity prices that are outside of their control, massive regulatory risk, international global competition. You know, what, what is there to like about this business? Why do, why do people like these things? Yes, it's big. Yes, it employs a lot of people, but it does not create value for shareholders. And that's just an objective fact that you could make when you look backwards. So. Hope springs eternal, and you know through that long decline we've seen uh, in Woodside, I'm sure there has been some savvy traders who have been able to pick it up when it's cheap and sell it off when it's had a bit of a bump. But you know I can't do that. I've I've met very few people who can. So for anyone who's looking for something that's that's going to be a sort of a, a buy to hold in a portfolio, yeah. a lot a lot of other better issues out there. Okay, so let's let me ask you. The power of ESG at the moment. What is it? Environmental, social governance is what um, ESG stands for. Um, how big a play, Andrew, is that in the market at the moment in terms of sectors like fossil fuel sectors and, and energy? Will it, do you see it being a dampener for a, forever now? Look, it's one of these things, these themes come and go in the market. And this is something that's it's in the press a lot. A lot of people are talking about it now. Um, so where that what that means short term, I'm not sure. But I would say this, I think a lot of these issues are becoming generally just more and more important for investors. And that is going to affect multiples going forward. Um, and it's not just a sentimental factor as well. I think that you can sort of take your personal views towards these things, whether it be an ethical or environmental concern, and just be a hard-nosed realist 
in terms of what this means. I mean, the industries that these guys operate in, we've got a lot of technological investment in renewables and replacement sort of uh, things. There's a big transition that's underway globally. Um, a lot of these businesses, I would argue very strongly, their true profitability is masked by a couple of factors. One, a very big, if I, if I was an economist, and I'm sure you could get some really smart economists on here to argue this, is that a lot of, there's a lot of externalities that these companies don't pay for, um, which I think if we're priced in would, would make the economics very different. Um, and also too, what I think a lot of people don't realize, and I point people to the Australia Institute here, do some incredible research on this, is just how many subsidies these guys get, uh, like fuel subsidies and the rest from the government as well. So it's sort of, it's this weird thing where people prop it up because, oh, it employs lots of people. And it, I think even, even while it does employ a lot of people, that is exaggerated to a great degree. So I, I again, wh why would you want to be involved in anything, uh, whether it's Woodside or these broader, broader uh, companies that are being exposed to these ESG concerns, which actually have some real validity behind them? It's just you're sailing into the wind. Um, go, go, go where the fishing is a lot easier, I say. Yeah. yeah Michael... How are you finding amongst your clients and the market the impact of, of ESG considerations before an investment decision is made? Look, to be honest with you, not a great deal, which is a little bit surprising. Obviously, occasionally there's a client who raises it here and there, but I do think a lot of it is driven by the media. And the fact of the matter is that there are, I think, about $53 trillion worth of funds under management now allocated towards ESG-type investments. So I think it's driven mainly at an institutional level initially, um, and obviously now the more it's talked about uh, and the more it's in the, the media and in different investment forums, et cetera, that the retail clients are starting to become more noticeable uh, of these types of issues that are confronting investors. So I definitely think it's going to grow significantly. Um, there's a lot of advisors out there who are looking to sort of jump ahead of it and, and sort of position themselves as ESG specialists. But on a day-to-day -day basis from the clients that we're speaking to, it's not a, a huge factor in their investment decisions, um, but it is obviously growing off a very low base. So at this point in time, I wouldn't say it, it's the deal breaker. People first and foremost are looking to make money. That's hard enough at the best of times, um, but it's definitely becoming a, a bigger point, albeit off a very low base. Yep, okay. All right, let's move on uh, to something that, a bit more conventional, and that's plumbing. Uh, James wants a view, Michael, on Reliance Worldwide, the um, huge organisation in terms of plumbing, heating, smart homes. Um, and recently, I was really interested, they bought one of Australia's largest producers of high-quality copper-based alloys and processors. Um, new and recycled. Apparently, uh, Reliance would sell their copper for recycling a lot of their products to LCL, and they did like the business so much they paid thirty-seven million dollars for it. Interesting transaction. Yeah, definitely. Um, look, this business has been a terrific growth company over the last decade or so. They pretty much integrate vertically integrated when it comes to the, the plumbing industry um, their key product is this shark bite technology which has really taken off globally um, their products are now in all the different suppliers across the us and the us housing market has been picking up a lot of steam and the fact is there's a lot of new starts that are in the pipeline when looking at the housing market in the us 
Um, there's been an enormous amount of spending um, in the home fixer-upper market, if that makes sense. So people <laughs> bolting on a spare bedroom or putting in a granny flat, that, that type of thing, particularly through this COVID period. So they've definitely benefited significantly from that. There was also a, a winter freeze over in the US in February, which also meant that pipes were cracking and, and fittings were, were breaking and all that sort of thing as well. So that also helped boost up their revenue over the last 12 months. Um, the industry is expected to continue to grow. I mean, people are talking about compound growth rates of 10% for the next five years, and, and Reliance Worldwide is definitely in a position to capture the upside from that. Um, but look, again, with this particular business, it's difficult to determine whether the big run that they've been having of late is sustainable for the more than the next 12 months or so. So for that reason, I've got it as a whole. It is one that we've looked at a couple of times in the past, but never pulled the trigger. You could definitely do worse than looking at a company like this, um, but also do factor into your analysis that input costs are also going up though significantly for the business, which when looking at the balance sheet, you'll see that margins have come under pressure. So copper prices have obviously been on a tear over the last few years, reaching record levels. That's a key input to a lot of their products. So that's putting a, lot, a bit of pressure at least to start with on their margins. So that's also something you wanna keep an eye on over the next six to 12 yeah. months. So is, I'll keep it as a hold for now. Which is obviously why they bought this, this company. That's as right. Well, a That's bit right. of protection there. Um, Andrew, what do you think of Reliance? Yeah, it's interesting. In, in regards to LCL, Reliance accounted for 90% of their revenues uh, beforehand as well. So it kind of made sense, I suppose, yeah. to bring them in-house. They've had some... They've had some good um, uh, track, a good track record with acquisitions. Uh, the other one was John Guest a few years ago, which took a little while to get sort of properly bettered down, but that seems to have done well. Look, this is a plumbing supplies business. It can't, it's hard to get more or uh, less exciting than that, but it's a company with a lot of pedigree and they've done really well yeah. for, a, for a long period of time. Um, uh, I do wonder, I guess, like you, you kind of, they talk a good game in terms of innovation and these shark bite, bite products, these are sort of like just snap lock, you push it together. It's a lot easier for plumbers, a lot faster. It's a lot easier for people like me who are useless with tools. Um, but you know, how much innovation really is there in that space? Um, there's a good base of earnings that they enjoy just for regular ongoing repair work. But then within that, there's a lot of variability with Michael was alluding to with housing starts and renovations and that kind of stuff. And cold weather is massive for them. So particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, when you have these cold snaps and all the pipes crack, that's that's wonderful news for them. So when you have a warmer summer, a warmer winter rather, it doesn't, it, it can really actually swing things around. So look, um, I think at the moment, I'd be inclined to go with Michael. It's a hold. I would expect that if you sort of look through all the noise, that this is a business that could probably generate sort of mid to upper single digit earnings growth over time. You're getting a two, two and a half percent yield along the way. Add that all together and it's 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 reasonably decent. It's not a screaming bargain. Um, it's certainly not cheap or expensive. Um, so yeah, I think you could do far worse, but it's not a buy for me. It's a hold at this point. Okay. All right. Um, Laura Andrew wants a view on uh, Genesis Energy. This is uh, the New Zealand based energy company. Uh, sort of is it a New Zealand version of AGL, sort of? It is, except I'd argue perhaps a bit more green in its credentials. So it's, yeah. it is a, a, a electricity provider, the largest in New Zealand. They account for something like, I think, one in four Kiwis get their electricity yeah. from, from Genesis, 38% of, of the gas market there, which is pretty big. 
Um, but their power generation is things like thermal power, hydroelectricity, and they're making a big move into uh, renewables as well. So uh, I guess they've got, they're, they're pretty well placed in, in the, the land of the long white cloud for that kind of stuff. Um, but it's one of these businesses that there's nothing really wrong with it, but it's not a business that is ever going to have extreme growth. Um, you know, where, where does growth come from? You've got to capture market share. Well, they're already the dominant player and we know how much inertia there is in with all of us when it comes to our utilities. So that's, that's always hard. So then it just really, and it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's in, it's in New Zealand as well, which, you know, it's not a huge population. So there's not much, you know, new areas to expand into. It is absolutely a yield stock. So it's 5% uh, at this point in time for Aussies. I think it's largely unfranked as well. Um, I think if you look at that, I actually looked at a presentation, a New Zealand presentation. So, but based on on for Kiwi residents at least, it was a 16% total shareholder return over the, since 2014. So it's actually delivered really good returns when you factor in those dividends and reinvest them. Um, so I think if you are happy with that, if you're happy for about a 5% yield, maybe you can get sort of three, 4% growth over time. It'll translate into something that's pretty respectable, pretty low risk. Um, it's, it's not the kind of investment that I'd go for, but if income is your thing and, and low risk is your thing, I think you could do far worse. Okay. Michael? Yeah, look, it's a pretty um, generic staple kind of product. Uh, so it's hard to get too excited about. They're definitely positioning themselves for this ESG environment. They're talking about phasing out coal um, generation by 2030 and focusing mainly on, on gas and other forms of, of power. So they're definitely ticking a box there. And if they do you know, get a bit of the attention from the uh, institutional investment community from the ESG side of things, and that could be enough to push the share price up and give it a bit of a, a re-rating higher. Um, but the thing is with a company like this, um, it's just very hard to generate any significant growth numbers over the long run. I'm sure they've built their business up quite nicely in, in recent times, but to maintain that's gonna be very, very difficult. Um, New Zealand definitely has the geographical makeup and physical form to benefit a lot from renewable type energy. And, and that will always be a, a positive in the minds of the ESG community. But in the end of the day, you've still got to go out and you've still got to sign up new clients. Um, you've got to get people to roll across from competing providers. And, and that's a, a slow game um, at the best of times. And, and without that, it's just an, a natural growth in the population that drives your growth numbers. So. From that standpoint, it's a conservative, old-fashioned utility-type business with a bit of a modern twist when it comes to the the um, renewable energy-type generation that this business is embarking on. So, for mine, it's it's a, a sell just because I think there are better investments out there in the market, but it's not the worst company by any stretch. Yep. Okay. All right. Let's just recap the first five stocks. Uh, Service Stream, I know from both Michael and Andrew. Same with Little Green Farmer and Seralto and also Woodside. Um, preference in, in that sector, in that energy, oil and gas is for, for Santos or, or oil search rather than Woodside. Um, and uh, Andrew sort of thinks it's been a perennial underperformer and the stats certainly back that up. Uh, Reliance a hold from both and Genesis a sell from Michael um, Andrew's not interested, not in his wheelhouse, but if you're a, uh, an investor that wanted uh, good dividend yield, good income return uh, from a very conservative investment, well, then maybe this could be on your watch list going forward. 
Um, here at the uh, the call, we've been tracking our own fantasy portfolio uh, since the 1st of July last year, thanks to our partner NAB Trade. All the stocks that uh, get two thumbs up from our expert panel go into the portfolio. So let's get a check on how it is performing for the week. We're down uh, 1.5% for the month, 0.7%. Uh, for the year to date from July 1 up uh, just over 34%. Uh, taking a look at some of the stocks recently added, uh, Global Data Centre Investment Fund, uh, Strike Resources, Venturex Resources, Galaxy and Flight Centre. Some of the stocks removed, Premium, McMahon and Bega Cheese. Now you can check all the stocks in the calls portfolio. Head to osbiz.co forward slash portfolio. A quick programming note, uh, up next at uh, 1.15, we'll be speaking to Peter Gibbons, the MD of Open Negotiation, the prop tech listed today, following a $9 million raise as it aims to bring transparency back to the real estate industry. So that's coming up at 1.15 Eastern. All right, let's get into our uh, second five stocks. Um, Andrew John wants a view on Silk Laser Australia. John says, a share I've stumbled across looking for value growth stocks. Um, would love to hear the views of the experts. It's a spe specialist uh, network of clinics, 53 clinics in the network throughout metropolitan and regional Australia in uh, non-surgical uh, aesthetic products and, and services. Um, basically, it's, um, what is it? Uh, cosmetic surgery. Yeah, I don't know if their technology is ever going to do much for me, but um, it seems to be something that's in a in a uh, a growth industry, shall we say? Um, laser hair removal, Botox. You can make your lips more pouty, uh, look like a Kardashian, uh, all of that kind of stuff. So we are all extremely vain uh, creatures, and uh, we know as a sector it's it's growing very rapidly. Um, which is a whole other rabbit hole that we won't we won't go down. Um, they only listed late last year, and this is I think it's the second largest provider. They they recently acquired uh, another company. So in fact, they reached about sixty clinics on their own recently, and the, this new acquisition boosts them to about one hundred and twenty or so. And they're looking as a medium term target to get to about one hundred and fifty. So this. People who have been on the ASX for a while will be familiar with this kind of story. It's, they're, they're pretty ordinary businesses as standalone businesses. Not, not terrible. I don't want to cast too many aspersions. But, you know, they are what they are. And, and the money here is made by rolling out this store network, by having somewhere where you consolidate all the corporate costs, you get the scale advantages, you get the branding of a global brand franchise. In fact, they do franchising as well. So there's some nice economics there when it, when it goes well. Um, and if, if they can do that, then maybe they go all right. But um, people would be aware that generally, I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing here, but this model doesn't always work out that well. Um, you've got to sort of spend a lot of money to sort of open up these stores and fit them out. In this case, with some pretty expensive uh, capital equipment too, with these uh, lasers and, and everything else with it. Uh, and then it takes a while for those individual stores to sort of mature and reach their full potential. And what generally happens is that these businesses look really great in the early stage because you're off a low base, 
you're opening up in the most attractive locations. The economics look really great. But then as the network grows, I mean, once you've sort of got a laser hair removal clinic in every mall, well, then, then you sort of go into less and less and less desirable places. And then you very much do hit this point where there's just like, well, where does the growth come after that? Now, arguers, uh, uh, believers in this would say, well, yes, that might be true, but there's still a long way to run. And that that's ab absolutely a valid argument. They're on a PE of 20. It's a bit hard to sort of get some look through uh, financials given the acquisition and the fact that they're pretty new. But my best guess at having a quick read is on about a PE of 20. They probably can grow pretty well. If, but, but this is a story of execution. And that was where that's where I would sort of ask John to sort of have a have a look at here in terms of management's track record. I, I haven't I haven't had a close enough look, but this is this is something that, that people like to talk a good game on. But if it's not executed well, it's going to lead to a lot of shareholder uh, wealth destruction. So just just want you'd really want to focus on that. It's a pass for me, by the way. Right. Okay. Um, Michael, we've seen these roll-up models in insurance, haven't we? We've seen it even in dentists that are listed on the market? Yeah, childcare, a whole range yeah. of things. It's a, it's a very good um, model. I mean, Retail Food Group was another one. It's a very good model to grow very quickly, um, but then it's how do you sustain those rates of growth and, and keep the, mar the market's interest over the long term? Um, there's no doubt that that um, the vanity is is a huge thing in the population these days. If you look at last year, facial cosmetics across the industry saw 25% growth. There was a 15% growth in anti-wrinkle injectables or Botox. So there's natural tailwinds across this industry, and this business is obviously looking to capitalise on that. And, and Andrew raises some very good points. The economics of these acquisitions make a lot of sense. You know, you you buy a bunch of private clinics uh, on say a multiple of four or five times. Then you incorporate it into your listed entity, and all of a sudden, those same investments are now valued at 20 times. Um, so it's a very good way to get some some good value early on. Um, it's just a matter of whether they can sustain it, and that's the big question so far. Without having seen their prospectus and their pro forma numbers, it's very difficult to make a judgment given the business is only very recently listed. But I do think I, I'm going to put myself out on the limb and say in the next couple of years, I dare say this business will grow very, very quickly. But you've also got to get a good understanding of the regulatory framework when it comes to these different sectors and these different businesses and industries, because I'm sure you're going to have to have a certain number of staff in each of the clinics. There's going to have to be a certain number of nurses, or you're always going to have to be constantly upgrading your equipment and, and repairing your equipment and, and getting the latest and greatest new products in. Um, so there are a lot of variables that have to be considered. But on the face of it, it seems like a business with as good a chance of delivering success in this space as any other at the moment. So for mine, it's a, it's not, it's a sell because I'm not going to buy it, but it's one to keep an eye on for the future. Okay. All right. So you'll uh, put it on your watch list there. All right. Something a bit more uh, traditional, Michael, is Dexas. Uh, Charlie wants a view on this, the big real estate group that's in uh, developing, owning, uh, managing property portfolios, developing and managing commercial office space. Uh, I notice they're the ones that are going to be responsible for uh, for building and developing Atlassian's um, new Australian headquarters um, at Central Station as well. Uh, what do you think of Dexas? Yeah, look, it's a very good company. Um, it's probably best of breed when it comes to commercial offices. Um, they own 
a big portfolio of very you know large high-rise assets throughout Sydney, um, some in Melbourne and some in Brisbane as well. Um, their occupancy rates are very, very high, above 90%. They managed to maintain their dividend even during COVID um, because get, looking at the, the office space in the CBD here in Sydney, over the last five years or so, it's been going crazy. Um, it's been taking off, rents have been going through the roof. Part of that is because the, the government resumed a lot of land for the metro stations and, and the metro building, et cetera. So this is a company that's benefited extremely well off the back of that. Um, they do have some very high grade premium assets. You know, the MLC Centre is another one that they're currently giving a bit of a facelift. And that's basically their, their business model, buy sites, develop sites or buy existing sites and improve them, hoping that they can then boost up the per square, per square metre rents. Um, they generate, you know, 75% of their revenue from, from rents. Um, about 8% of their revenue comes from, from management fees, so channeling their, their inner Goodman group there. And that's a part of the business that they're, they're looking to build up over time because the economics of just being a manager are, are very, very good. But the question is, what do you think, you know, um, real estate or commercial property in the city, what do you think prices are going to do over the next five years or 10 years? And it's very difficult to predict with any certainty. Um, going back to the early 90s, it took about 20, 25 years for rents and for prices to pick up again. Um, obviously, if you have a short-term memory, the last five years have been tremendous, but over a longer time frame, it's not always as good. So Dexas pays about a 5%, 5% dividend yield, um, despite what many people might think would be a terrible time during COVID with no one heading into the city. Um, so if I'm looking for a property investment on the market, Dexas um, is probably one that I would look at. Pays a very good yield, has some good projects in the pipeline, and has a very good track record. Um, whether or not I'll be buying in at this point in the cycle um, is probably a no-go, but could be a buy for a, a yield-based portfolio because it does give you quality exposure to commercial real estate. Okay. Uh, Andrew? Yep, uh, Michael's made some excellent points there. It's, um, it's all about yield uh, for these guys. Um, you know, if you look over the last uh, five years or so, that dividend has grown at an average rate of about 4% per annum. So um, there's a wonderful little valuation technique. It's called the Gordon Growth Model for, for income investors, which I've found really handy over the years. And it's, it's a very rule of thumb kind of thing. But if you take the starting yield and you add to that the rate at which you feel the dividend can grow, that's going to give you a good proxy for your total return. So, for example, if you're saying I want a 10% total return, and I've got a 5% yield with these guys, I would need to see this dividend grow at about 5% per year for that to, to overall deliver a 10% return. This is over the long term and yep. you know, there's, there's averages within that, but it's a great rule of thumb, I think, for long-term income investors. So the question you've got to ask yourself is, is what's the total return that you want? Michael's just said you're getting 5% if you invest now, um, and then you know, make up the difference with how much growth you think that they can achieve. Um, so I haven't done the numbers on this, but when I jumped onto uh, Comsec, they've got they've got consensus guidance there from from people who do focus on this. It was interesting to note that there's no growth in the dividend for at least for the next two to three years as well. Um, so you're getting a five percent yield with not much growth in that. Now that might be fine because it's probably pretty low risk, but it's not going to shoot the lights out. Um, so that's that's the compromise that that you're taking here. And I guess the other longer term perspective might be here is that, you know, we've seen with COVID just how effectively a lot of us can work from home um, and with increased uh, connectivity and the rest of it. 
what are these what are these CBD properties? Are they are they going to have command the same kind of pricing power that they may have traditionally? I don't know. And that's a very long term structural trend that we'll we'll see play out one way or the other. But when you add all of that together and you contrast that with other investment opportunities, it's it's a pass from me. But I wouldn't fault you if you were if you were an income investor and you were happy with with maybe a six, seven, eight percent total return over the long term. Right. Okay. All right. Sticking with the uh, the property area, but uh, in a different version of it, Andrew Max wants a view on Centre Group, uh, another real estate investment trust, but this one that operates all of the Westfield shopping centres in Australia and New Zealand, and of course, Unibail Redemco does all the overseas old overseas. Um, Westfield shopping centres. Uh, what do you think of Centre? Uh, you know, it, it's all right. It's it's pretty boring kind of stuff. Uh, same same kind of thing is with with Nexus, right? Yeah, I mean, there's some great assets there. Forty two, I think Westfield centres there, and you know, everyone in the world goes to a Westfield at some point. Um, they're obviously doing it tough uh, at the moment with with all the lockdowns. Uh, we saw last time we had the uh, you know major lockdowns um, when COVID was in was in full flight. Uh, we saw their gross rents drop by about 70% or so. So I would say as any investor, it's you've got to, as difficult and hard as that is, that that you've got to look past that. This, this isn't something that will be around forever if the government gets its act together in terms of vaccinations at least. Um, but, you know, I just I just gave you a formula there for, for trying to work out your total return here. So over since 2012, dividends have grown, but at about 2.5% per year. Now you're getting about a 6% yield. So push that forward, assume the same rate of growth going forward as you have in the past. And it's about an 8% yield. Again, looking at the, the experts, the analysts who focus on the, on these sectors, they actually, again, with as with Dexas, there's no real growth forecast over the coming years. So very safe, very reliable, very boring, um, very mediocre in its returns. But a lot of people really like those dividends. And if that's you, again, it's okay, yeah. but but not for me. Yeah, and if you look at that five-year chart, uh, the share price is pretty trades within a really narrow band. So everybody goes for the yield. And I must must admit, Michael, when the Lowys sold out of Westfield, I thought, well, if the founders are selling out and <laughs> taking the money and run, they know the business better than me. Why would I want to be in it anymore? <laughs> yeah, well, they actually um, they split. The business, the Westfield business, into two parts: Centre yep. Group, which was the um, Australian-based assets, and then Westfield, which at the time was all the European assets. They actually sold out majority of, of Centre Group well before they ended up selling the rest of Westfield. So they probably could see the writing on the wall there. Um, the fact is, in Australia, shopping centres are probably in a better position than than in the US because there's not as many of them. So the, that, that's probably one good thing. Um, it's probably, look, Centre Group to me is not as high quality as, say, a Dexas. Um, the business has gone through a bit of a, a period of change in recent years where they're relying less on clothing retailers and trying to get more food and entertainment-based tenants into their centres. And, and that's been to a, a success to some degree. Um, I do feel sorry for these types of companies in this environment. I mean, they were recovering very, very well from the COVID-induced slowdown last year. Um, in April of this year, they're at 93% of their foot traffic from 2019, I think it was. So they were recovering very, very well. And obviously, they've been smacked back down uh, with the latest lockdowns. Um, the problem for, for Centre Group is, although they're running at 98% occupancy, 
What are they doing to keep those levels um, of, of occupancy rates? Obviously, in recent years, the revenue generated by each of their tenants isn't growing as quickly as it once was. Um, and rents used to be basically linked to revenue growth of the tenants, but also um, there was a CPI component there as well. And once upon a time, you know, revenues were growing 5%, CPI was growing at 2 3%. You had year after year, very, very impressive rental growth, but they're just not being able to achieve that in this day and age. And it's unlikely that those conditions will be replicated anytime soon. So from my standpoint, I'll be steering clear. They were forced to cut their dividend from 22 cents pre-COVID down to 7 cents. So that's a big drop off in dividends, even yep. if you are an income investor. And again, it's going to be very, very challenging in a long road back to that 22 cent figure. So from mine, if I was looking at a property type investment, I think there are probably better alternatives out there than Centre Group. Okay. All right. Yep. Really good points made there. Thank you for that. Uh, Sophie, uh, Michael wants a view on Elmo Software. Sophie says, seems to have been growing consistently for years. Would appreciate uh, opinions on this. This is uh, um, basically an HR uh, software platform that covers payroll, um, rostering schedules, looking after an employee from, from hiring to, uh, as they say, retiring from a business. Yeah, that's it. Look, I mean, Elmo's one that I've been going on about for a couple of years and, and sometimes you get them right, sometimes you don't. And this is one which has just been flatlining for that entire period. It's had moments where it's looked like it's going to take off and break out of its trading range and then moments where it just gets sucked back towards that, that bottom band. Um, it's a, it is a high quality tech company that is growing at a 20% plus. Um, yet the market, for whatever reason, hasn't jumped on the back of it as much as it has other businesses in the space. So when you look at Elmo, it probably trades on 15 times revenue, 10, 15 times revenue, something like zero is up around 30, 40, 50 times revenue. Mm -hmm. So you can see that for a similar type of business, which is growing at a, at a rapid rate, even faster probably than zero, it's not getting the same market premium. And that's probably because it hasn't got the runs on the board over the same length of time. But if you look at all the key metrics, things like uh, churn rates, customer retention, you look at margins, look at revenue growth, they've all been very, very good. Um, churn rates did take a little bit of a hit with COVID, same with customer retention, but it was only a very small hit from very, very lofty levels. And that's possibly why the market has been put off it in more recent times. They probably want to see the, the company recover those key metrics as they emerge from COVID. COVID on one hand has been a negative for them because they haven't been able to maintain the same sort of sales regime as they once did to keep on bringing on new customers. Um, but it's also been good in a way where many smaller businesses are being forced into the cloud away from more traditional ways of managing your employees um, because of the work from home environment. So that has been a, a positive for them. The adoption rates have been okay for that reason. Uh, they continue to grow organically. They continue to acquire businesses as well. Um, they acquired recently a business in, 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 um, in, I think, the UK. I think they've made about 10 acquisitions since they listed a few years back and all have been EPS accretive. So they've got a pretty good track record in bolting on some of these smaller businesses to broaden out their, um, their client offerings to clients. Because the whole thing is that they've probably got about 13 different modules and each client might come on using three or four of those modules. But over time, the idea is you can then cross sell them into right. other modules. So yep. What we do like about the business is there's chance for growth by winning on new businesses, but also by getting existing businesses to use more of your products. So 
from mine, I'm going to give it a, a tentative buy. I will probably hold out and wait to see what they report in this recent, in this upcoming reporting season. Um, they have been meeting expectations um, on guidance, but I think the market's been looking for them to blow them, blow the market out of the water with a, 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 an announcement that exceeds expectations that hasn't been forthcoming. So given it's at the bottom end of the trading band, it basically has an upside of $8 and a downside of about $4. Um, I think it's not a bad time to be looking okay. at this one from a more value perspective when it comes to the tech space. All right. Andrew? Yeah, well, I agree with Michael a lot there, actually. So a lot of these metrics look really great. One thing I might correct you on, although I'll have to double check my notes here, but I've actually got it on about five and a half times sales. So they recently lifted their revenue guidance for the full year to about 70 million. So that's that's really low in you know, 20 years ago, we would have said that was ridiculously high, but these <laughs> days, that, these these days, it's not too bad. Um, I would uh, I would argue. Oh, and by the way, they've raised their guidance. I didn't back in, uh, a couple months ago uh, as well. As Michael said, the top line growth has just been exceptional. I mean, their their sales have tripled since 2017. So what's the market missing? I would argue the market's probably losing a little bit of patience here in terms of the the actual money that's going to come out the, the, at the at the bottom end here. So while sales and revenue has tripled since 2017, more or less, in fact, a bit more when we get these these this year's numbers in or FY21s, the net pat, the losses have increased. We've gone from a loss of $1 million per year in 2017 to $18 million on a statutory basis last year. So it's one of these businesses that's just growing and growing and growing at the top, but the, but the costs are growing and growing. So I think investors yeah. are coming, are sort of getting to the point, it's like, well, come on, show, show me the money kind of thing. Now, that's not unusual. It's okay if you do that. But at, what I would be looking for here is for them to actually stabilize that cost base and actually start to unleash the potential in terms of operating leverage here. So until that happens, I'd keep it on a watch list. But for all of the reasons that Michael outlined, absolutely, there's a lot of stuff to like you. Big market mm. opportunity. Um, I just want to see some more cost control. Okay. All right, our final stock um, is BetMakers. Sean wants a view on this, Andrew, uh, saying the share price fell after the Tabcorp offer. Uh, they offered by part, part of Tabcorp was rejected. Has, uh, hasn't recovered even after some good news. What are the experts' thoughts now below a dollar? Uh, what Tom Waterhouse's betting group has now become associated with it or earned the right to, to shares in it. Um, Andrew, what do you think of BetMakers, the, the gaming and wagering business? Yeah, so we had a, quite a bit of activity on this on Strawman, actually. It's ranked number 23, so a lot of our members really like it. Um, it is, it's it's a bit hard to sort of look through at the moment. This Tabcorp uh, potential acquisition uh, is, is going to be a very big deal if it gets over the line, but whether that happens or not, a big part of that is going to be paid in shares. So the further the share price falls, the more it's going to cost them. So that's a really interesting dynamic that's going to play out here. Um, one of the points that a few of our members have made here is that Matthew Tripp, a lot of the viewers will be familiar with this guy, he started Sportsbed. He made an absolutely outstanding return on that. Very savvy guy uh, in the industry. He's got a strategic investment in there and he's got, he, he stands to benefit uh, really nicely, I think, through some options if, if uh, he, he, he manages to accelerate some growth uh, in this business here. Um, so that's interesting. Um, there's some potential legislative changes over in the US that could really open up uh, some, some growth for them. Yep. So these are the guys that do sort of the back end technology of, of all the bookmakers there. And um, 
they've got some pretty impressive clients. So we can, I know we're short on time, so I'll, yeah. I'll shut up. But I, I'll give it I'll give it a, a, ten, a hold at this stage. Although I, I, I'm leaning to a, a speculative buy to back our members. But for me, it's there's a lot of moving parts right now. Okay, Michael. Uh, it's one that we've held for a while and done very well off. It was looking a lot better when it was at $1.60. Um, I'm not sure why it got to $1.60, probably just momentum in the share price. But with that acquisition that they were proposing, I now think it's off the table, but it was an enormous acquisition yeah. for them, almost a reverse takeover. Uh, and that took the wind out of the sales. And in more recent days, so Tom Waterhouse runs a betting fund type thing, and he was a very early backer of betmakers. He's recently converted a lot of options. And he's likely selling those shares down now to, to sort of realise his gain. That's probably putting pressure on the share price in the last couple of days. We have it as a buy because they are doing a lot of good things. And we like the fact that they're a sort of a tech business in that betting space. But it's a speculative buy. Obviously, it's a still small and emerging business. Okay. All right. Michael Wayne from Medallion Financial. Great to have you aboard today. Always great to catch up. And Andrew Page, likewise, with you from Strawman. Good to see you guys. Uh, just to recap our final five stocks, um, Silk Laser, a no from Andrew. Um, it's on Michael's watch list. Uh, Dexas, a no from, uh, from Andrew. Michael says uh, a good yield stock and a good property company if you want yield. Centre Group, a no from both. Uh, Elmo, um, a tentative buy from Michael, but he's got to wait until... Uh, their, their report for the last financial year comes out in the next month or so, um, but likes the stock. Um, Andrew's going to do the same. And Betmakers, a speculative buy from Michael and a hold from Andrew. Uh, that's our show for today. If you'd like any stocks put to our uh, expert panel, uh, email them in the call at ausbiz.com.au or tweet us using the at TV handle. All the stocks in the calls portfolio, if you want to look at them, go to osbiz.co forward slash portfolio. And at the end of every day, you should be subscribing to the Osbiz newsletter. You get a full wrap up of the world of startups, what's happened on the markets, finance and business news. You get Scuddy's view, a link to the close of the COB podcast and links to the most popular interviews on the platform during the day. Subscribe osbiz.co forward slash the COB. That's it from me. Uh, a lot happening this afternoon on Ausbiz. We will be back after the break. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.